All right, the ushers are coming along now to give out Bibles to those who are in need and also to pass out some note sheets so that you might have something to guide your learning today. Uh, don't forget that uh, if you take a bulletin, inside of the bulletin is a colored insert that helps you to be in prayer throughout the week for the needs of our church and to know how to praise the Lord God for all the things that He is doing in us and among us. So make sure to take that home and make that a regular part of your, uh, your weekly routine in seeking the Lord that your church might be prayed for and that uh, others you might have covenants are praying for you as well. And again, if you haven't visited it on a Sunday evening uh, to worship with us in the, in the evening service at 6 o'clock, we spend a big portion of that time praying for one another's needs too. So it's a great opportunity if you want to spend more time seeking the, the throne of, of God uh, in prayer and supplication, then come on out and join us on a, a Sunday evening at 6. It's a great time of fellowship and worship. So we are studying through this book of 1 Corinthians. It is a letter written by Paul uh, to the Corinthian church, a place where there was a good contingent of believers. And uh, these believers, they've got struggles. Some have shown arrogance, boasting in their wisdom, flaunting their freedoms. Uh, But Paul is still compelled to tell these Christians that they are indeed gifted believers, that there is much evidence in their lives that the Holy Spirit is strong among them, uh, that there is true conversion that has happened amongst these people. We we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, where Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. He's not just upset because they constantly need correction. He's also grateful for them. He says, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in Him, in all speech and in all knowledge, So here's a people that are mishandling their knowledge. They think they're wiser than they are. They're not talking to each other the ways that they should. And yet Paul is acknowledging that, look, it's not all bad. God has blessed you in many good ways. You do have some really great knowledge. You do have the gifts uh, that uh, are coming from the Spirit. You need to learn how to use them better. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So despite their faults, there was some evidence that God was working among these people. We shouldn't be surprised. I mean, God's word teaches us that when a a person really trusts in Jesus, they can't stay the same. They can't be what they were before. Though even though the large majority of the Corinthian church was largely made out of recently converted pagans who came from a background of worshiping any number of false idols and false gods who in in fact had engaged in uh, incredibly immoral things as worship to those gods, that now that they have been saved by Jesus Christ, there's a distinct difference in them. They are not as sanctified as they need to be But they are sanctified. God is making them holy. He is taking the things in them that don't belong in the life of a Christian and He is pruning them out. He's refining these brothers and sisters in the Lord. When somebody moves from spiritual life to spiritual death, they undergo a radical shift in character. Their desire and their aims are profoundly changed. So the evidence is there. Without a doubt, there are a great many legitimate brothers and sisters in Corinth gifted in powerful and undeniable ways. What they do with those gifts, however, is so very important to their testimony as God's church there in Corinth. 
And so Paul launches into a lengthy examination, starting in chapter 12, of what it means to be the recipient of spiritual gifts that are not just some innate ability from within a person, but are the manifestation of God's power and ability in the life of a believer that are given for the benefit of the greater body of Christ. And so we're going to continue to work through this passage of Scripture. These three chapters are really one unit, chapters 12, 13, and 14. But let's look, uh, starting at verse 4, uh, what Paul is going to teach the Corinthians here in chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together as we seek his truth. God, we praise you. We know that we live amongst a people of unclean lips, Lord God, and the idea of truth is such a rare commodity, rarely even sought out today, Father. Everyone thinks that truth is a matter of personal opinion or individual interpretation, Lord God, but we know that there is truth. There is a difference between good and evil, and you are good, Lord God. So please, come be with us. We know that you are present among us, Lord God. Help us to understand these things. Show us, through your word, how we are to respond to this gift that you have given. Help us know how to utilize these gifts that are such a blessing to us and make us humble in their application, Lord God. We pray, Father, that you would cause these concepts to begin to really sink into us Help us to rejoice in them. Father, give us a biblical understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Verses 4 through 11 set a broad backdrop of the discussion of these gifts. And there is much to be considered in these verses. So we're going to take our time in doing so. Today we're going to look primarily at the gifts in general, the giving of gifts, Next week, we're going to answer the frequently asked question of, are these miraculous gifts that are mentioned here, are they still valid today? Are they given by God in the modern church? And then we're going to stop and look in some detail at each of the gifts mentioned in the partial catalog of, virtu- of, of gifts mentioned in these verses. So that's the next three Sundays. Now, if you have read ahead, and, uh, and that's not cheating, by the way. If you read ahead, that's a good thing. Be in the book of 1 Corinthians on your own so that when we come together, we can all kind of have a better context of what this letter is supposed to say. But if you've read ahead, or maybe if you were paying close attention to the sermon last week, then you know that Paul will eventually zoom this discussion in. It'll begin to focus more acutely on two of the more controversial gifts in this list. 
the, the speaking in tongues that are mentioned here and the interpretation of those tongues. And he's going to expand on that greatly when we get to chapter 14. But before he hits that topic right on the head, he's going to lay some foundational statements that are helpful in framing out the way that we think about these blessings from the Lord. So looking at the content of verses 4 through 11, Paul shows us that there is diversity in the types of gifts that God gives to his people. There's diversity in the types of gifts. Now, before we look at diversity and its virtues, there is no denying that God desires a unified church. He wants his church to be one. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for his people before he goes to the cross for us. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, meaning his followers are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So what kind of oneness does Jesus want for his people? He wants for us the kind of oneness that he experiences with the Father. Now that's incredible if you know anything about the Trinity, right? God the Son and God the Father, along with God the Spirit, have been one divine being for all time. There is no discrepancy in their wills. They, they love the same things. They desire the same things. And that is the kind of unity that God, Jesus wants his church to experience one to another, that we would love the same things, that we would be unified in what we want as a church, that we would all together applaud what God wants and seek it. Romans 15, verses 5 through 6, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul say he wants to the church that's in Rome? He says he wants harmony among them. He wants them to be singing together the praises of God, not disconnected from one another, not all pulling in individual directions, split up into factions, but rather united around one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, which chapter 13 is going to emphasize greatly here in 1 Corinthians. Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see that oneness there. Notice also verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there is a great unity that God desires for us. The more that our chief love is Christ and the more we conform ourselves to the direction of Scripture, the more unified we will be in holiness, the more unified we'll be in mission, and the more unified we will be in love. But unity is not the same as uniformity. To be unified and to come together does not mean that our individual identities somehow fade away into the collective hive mind of Christianity. That's not what we're talking about here. We remain uniquely diverse in our personality, in our perspectives, 
in our weaknesses, and yes, in the strength of the spiritual gifts that God has given to each one of us. The ways that God chooses to manifest His generosity will look quite different from one believer to another believer. Why is diversity important? Why not just give everyone all the gifts? God has the power to do that, doesn't He? Why doesn't He just say, well, you're one of mine? All right, now you've got the gift of knowledge, you can speak in tongues, you can heal, you can do all these things. Why does He just lavishly bless us with every gift in the catalog? Why is diversity important to Him? You see, God's goal in gifting us is not to make an army of super-Christians. He has something different in mind. He is building a superb church, a single bride who is adorned in a kaleidoscope of brilliant colors, beautiful in the ways that it works together in humility and harmony to honor the spiritual head who is Jesus Christ. So in accomplishing that, God is pleased to bring together a broad variety of people and then to reveal various aspects of His glory through them in a wide range of ways. I marvel at this when I, I listen to some of my fr- favorite preachers. Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm not only hearing the preaching that goes on here, and I hope that you hear preaching beyond our church. There are many brothers uh, throughout the world who have been gifted in powerful ways to communicate the Word of God to others. And there's such a variety in the ways that they accomplish that. I mean, all of them if they are good preachers, are expositing the Word of God. They are anchored to what the Scripture has to say. They are all seeking the original meaning of the text. They are seeking to glorify Christ in the way that they preach. So there's a lot in common between these good preachers. But each of them goes about it with a different flavor, a different flair, a different style, a different character. So I listen to Sinclair Ferguson, who is a Presbyterian brother. And Sinclair, when he preaches, he comes with such a gentle reflection to us and such a, such a wisdom that just that eases you into a greater love for the Lord. And then you have Stephen Lawson, on the other hand, who's a Baptist preacher who preaches with a, a passionate pleading and an urgency. I mean, he is, he is driving home his points because he knows that we only have so much time on this earth. The gospel must go out into the world People must hear this truth and have a, have a chance to decide, am I going to follow this or am I going to reject this? And so God uses Stephen Lawson to accomplish many of the same things that Sinclair Ferguson does, but in very, very different ways. H.B. Charles, a wonderful brother in the Lord, distills the word down to its essential meanings. And he makes it very easy to remember. You carry with you the things that you hear when H.B. preaches them. You're going to be thinking about them for several days to come. Paul Washer has such a reverent gravity to the way that he preaches that if you have been neglecting humility in your life, he will help you, help you come to it, all right? He will bring you low before the Lord God, and he will be low himself before God because in his preaching, Christ is so high and so exalted and lifted up. There's a man named Samuel Renahan, pastor down south who I love, and he brings just incredible accuracy to the way that he interprets the text and categorically shows you what each part means. But he's also got this great pastoral concern. He shepherds a church and he cares for his people. And so he doesn't just preach beyond them so that he'll make a name in the world. He's preaching to his people and you can see how much he loves them and the way he desires for them to, to really grab hold of the text. And so all these different men are preaching different ways, but they're preaching the same Christ. And they're preaching the one good word. 
But we don't have to look beyond the walls of this church to see this illustrated. We see a picture of it right here at First Family. We see the loving consideration of a humble widow who brings the prayer needs of this church up to the Lord every single day. She, she doesn't neglect the little colored sheet in her bullet. She takes it home. She prays over it every single day, sometimes many times a day. That's what she can contribute to the church. And so she is intent to pray for her people. And then we see the service of a 45-year-old deacon who mows that sister's lawn and cleans out her gutters because she doesn't have the strength to do that anymore. Her husband used to do it, but she's by herself now. And so someone else in the church steps into that gap and fills that need. We see the freshly baptized 10-year-old little girl in the congregation whose awe and wonder for the Lord reminds us all, us oldies, right, that we should continue to have that faith like a child, that wonder and that care for the Lord God and to, to be just blown away by how big he is and how great he is. And then the woman who is already striving to make dinner for her family, the house is already hot, she's cooking, but she works a little longer and makes a little extra so that she can take that meal over to a brother or sister in the church who's recovering from illness. Do you see how these varieties of gifts are used in such a diverse way to bring a unity to the people of God? It's a beautiful thing when the church is working like this. When everybody is saying, how do I apply what God has given to me to the benefit of this family that I'm now a part of and will always be a part of? And it would make sense that God would build diversity into the design of his church. When we consider that diversity is rooted in the triune God himself, in whose image man and woman were made. Did you notice the Trinitarian formula in the beginning of the passage that we read together today? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Referring to Jesus. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God, referring to the Father there, who empowers them all in everyone. And so we serve one God, friends, a God who is unique from every other being who exists because this one God is essentially different than us in his nature. Every other being that you encounter in life is one being who has a particular kind of nature. I am one being and I have a human nature. I express myself in human ways. But God is one being, one nature, expressed in three persons. So he's radically different than anything else you're going to encounter in this life. We refreshed our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity back in December. So if you wanted to kind of go back and pick up on those concepts again and just bask in the light of Christ's uniqueness, then go and listen to some of those sermons that we, we preached through December as we got ready to celebrate the coming of Jesus. This one God is absolutely without conflict in himself. And yet there are three distinct persons present who each have their own roles, who each play their own parts in the fulfillment of the one divine will of God. So in perfect unity, the three persons of that triune God all have roles. They all have responsibilities some of which are unique from the roles and responsibilities of the other two persons of the Godhead. So the Father, for instance, he elects. When we read in Ephesians about the election of the saints, that we are predestined before time began, we also can think back to John 10, 29, where it says, My Father, who has given them to me, as Jesus speaks to the church, 
is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here we see that the Father has given the elect to Christ, that he is also the one who preserves them and helps them to endure so that no one can steal them away from the good shepherd. The Son has his own responsibilities and roles. He is the one who takes on flesh. He fulfills the law. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't take on a human body. God the Father does not possess a human nature in addition to his God nature. Jesus the Son does that. That is his unique role. That doesn't make him better or worse than the other two parts of the Trinity, the other two persons of the Trinity. The Son takes on the flesh, he fulfills the law, and he gives his life as a ransom for God's people. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, meaning all who would believe in him. And then in Romans 10.9, we read, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father raised him from the dead. He was participating in our salvation in that unique way. The Holy Spirit, what does he do in salvation? He quickens the heart of the unbeliever. What that means is that while we were spiritually dead and slaves to sin, while we were physically alive but could not do anything of spiritual value. There was nothing that we could do to bless the kingdom of heaven. There was nothing that we could do to truly obey the Lord because we were abjectly rebellious against him. When our hearts were as hard as a stone, the Holy Spirit came and quickened us. That means that he took that heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He made us soft to the things of the law so that we would no longer want to rebel with every act of freedom that we expressed against God, but that we would begin to see the beauty of God and the beauty of his law, and that we would desire to obey him out of reverent awe for who he is and what he has done for us. So if the three persons of the Godhead have unique roles, then so too does it make sense that we, as members of the body of Christ, would each have individual roles, that we would have useful attributes that God would foster, that he would fill us with, that he would manifest in us, that we might be a blessing to the people around us and a blessing to the name of the God we serve. If this diversity in gifting is by God's very design, and a good argument can be made that it is a reflection of this glorious divine nature of God himself, then we should not covet each other's gifts. We should not look at someone who is gifted differently than us and say, oh man, I wish I could do what that believer could do for the Lord. You know, that, I could see all the joy that they get from serving God in that way. I wish I could have that responsibility. That would be like the Holy Spirit saying, man, I, I wish I could go and fulfill the law. It doesn't make any sense, does it? God has designed us each the way he has because we're part of his great complex plan. We should not covet one another's gifts. That also means that we, we should not lack appreciation for the gifts in the church that don't seem as glamorous as other gifts. We should not look down on certain gifts thinking, oh yeah, that gift's it's given to so many people, it's not really all that special. And then somehow attribute celebrity to the people in the congregation who might have unique gifts that are a little bit less frequently distributed to people. Instead, we should be thankful that all those things tie together for the health and the well-being of God's family. And we should understand that no one, not a single individual in this world, possesses all of the gifts in spades. Right? We each have been given some measure of the manifestation of God's spiritual gifting, but not one of us doesn't need anybody else. 
Not one of us is completely independent apart from our brothers and sisters. God wants us to be tied together. And so diversity fosters interdependence. If we are not the same, then some of what you have, I do not have. And so you have become very helpful and useful to me. We are diverse, and that makes it more easy for us to see the value in depending upon one another. Now, is that a tragedy to overcome? Is the fact that I don't have every gift a tragedy? Do we all need to have exactly the same gifts? It is not a tragedy to overcome. Now, the secular world that we live in says they value diversity. We hear that all the time. But think about the ways that in their actions, in their practice, this culture that we live in seems to think of diversity as some terrible sin and that we all need to be uniform, exactly the same. Think of how feminism has tried to convince us that there is no beauty in the difference between woman and man. And that, in fact, we would be a much highly evolved society if we would break down all of those differences and we would all be exactly equal and occupy the same jobs and have the same roles. And it was just completely fluid. You see how diversity is ruined there? As we try to think of everyone as exactly the same thing? No, God made variety on purpose. So true diversity says, yes, they are men. Yes, they are women. Yes, they are different. And that is good because that's how God designed it. We see that in our culture today as the very identity of genders is being undercut. Our society is trying to dissolve the distinctions between men and women. And it, friends, if there are no distinctions, there is no diversity. If you can just be whatever you want to be or say whatever you want to say you are and then people have to just conform to that, then you're not really anything. You're just a whim. You're like a feather floating in the air, blown one way or the other by your emotions. We need to be what God has made us to be. We see it in the modern university today. The modern university where they say they're forward thinking and there's so much diversity. And then as soon as you begin to ask questions that go down a different line of thought or suggest possibly conservative biblical values for the world, you're shut down immediately. That conversation won't be had. Because really all they're trying to do in the universities today is produce people who think exactly the way they want them to think. There is no valuing of counter thoughts and opinions that might get us to think critically about life. So diversity is not a tragedy to overcome. Diversity is a providentially designed component of a society where we learn to appreciate one another and value that each of us Whatever we bring to the table has been given by our Savior as something good to offer our church. Rather than coveting one another's uniqueness, wishing that God had given me what someone else has, shouldn't I just be grateful that whatever role God has ordained for me to play is a good role and is important for the life of the church? Shouldn't we seek to utilize His gifts to the maximum benefit of our church family, no matter what those gifts are? Even when you lack, rather, even what you lack is a gift to me. Because what you lack urges me to use and share what I have been given to the glory of God. Think about that for a minute. Let me give you an extreme example. What if someone in our church becomes disabled, like radically disabled, and they need the constant care of this community? I mean, they, they can't do anything for themselves. 
And we as a church have got to come around them and care for their needs. Does that mean that that individual ceases to be a blessing to the community? Everyone else has taken the role of blessing. They're not a blessing anymore. Now they're a burden. No, that is not what it means. It is here that a biblical view of the sovereignty of God reminds us that God works all things to the good of his people. So even the physically dependent person is a blessing to those in the community of believers around them, for we are now blessed in meeting that person's needs through the exercise of our gifts. Some of our best lessons in God's grace might be learned in generously giving to someone who cannot give anything back to us in return. Doesn't that describe the, the redeemed relationship that we have with God to a T? Does God need you at all? Do you contribute anything to his well-being? He's glorious whether you sing his praises or not, right? So God's love for you is one way. He blesses you with his grace. He blesses you with true sight to see what is right and what is wrong. He blesses you with the Holy Spirit. He brings around you a body of Christ to be a family for you. You really don't give much to the Lord. Now, we do come and we give in obedience to him, but we give him nothing that he lacks. So there are times when, when somebody's even lack of health and lack of gifting can be a blessing to us because it mobilizes us to think more carefully about how we can be what Christ has called us to be to the benefit and blessing of that person who's in need. God's, and this is a side thought here, but God's wonderful use of diversity is part of the reason why homosexuality is morally wrong. I, I've, I've been asked this from time to time from people what is so wrong about homosexuality? Why is it a sin? If two people love each other and God is love and love is good, then why would we try to step in the way of that love? Why would we try to stop what seems to be a reflection of God's care and affection and, and, and uh, consideration between two people who just happen to be of the same gender? Well, first of all, apart from God, friends, we've got to understand that there is no way that we can love someone with a godly love. If we are not abiding in Christ, if Christ's death on the cross has not paid for our sins, then we are completely detached from love itself. We do not have a right relationship with God. In fact, we are enemies to it. So first and foremost, we need Christ. Christ has got to be the foundation upon which any love we hope to have is built. Uh, by the way, that's true also of heterosexual love. Two young people who are tempted to sleep together might profess to love one another. If they are not married, they would love each other best by pointing each other to Christ and not by engaging any sort of physical affection that would and should be reserved for the covenant of marriage. But secondly, in a homosexual union, you're in a fundamental way loving what you already are instead of loving what you are not. It is not wrong to love what, what is like you, but marriage and the intimacy that comes along with the marriage covenant is a very specific and particular type of love that God intends to use to accomplish a particular type of glory for himself. Marriage is a parallel and a type of God's love for his church. So then a homosexual relationship does not properly reflect that kind of love because God is different than his church. Two fundamentally different beings 
relating to one another by a covenant of promise. We need Him. We need His protection and His strength. He overcomes our weakness. Neither does a homosexual relationship honor the pattern of, of the first marriage, of Adam and Eve's marriage. Because in Adam and Eve's marriage, we learned just a couple of weeks ago, there is a pattern of headship established. Do you remember reading about that and, and, and studying about that? How do you honor this pattern of headship where a wife submits to a husband if you have two wives? How is that even possible? There is no biblical compliance possible in a relationship like that. So Eve contributes a different character, comes alongside Adam in an arrangement that includes headship, which itself is another reflection of our more important relationship with God. A same-sex relationship cannot reflect the glory of God in those ways. And that is why God brought marriage to us. Now, diversity helps keep our selfishness in check. Think about this. If I am relying on you to be what God has made you to be, then it is harder for me to overestimate my own, my own abilities. I can no longer pretend that I am the only special and gifted child of God. God has loved you too. He has gifted you too, and he's done so in different ways, and he's gifted me. And how you use the gift that God gave to you to be a blessing to the church is beautiful, just like my gift being used is beautiful. It all represents a portion of God's expressive will for his people. The beauty of my own obedience is rooted in where it comes from. It's not rooted in me. It's rooted from the Holy Spirit. And it is to be appreciated in the context of many colors and shades of God's will brilliantly shining among the people of God. So there is diversity in the types of gifts given. But in beautiful contrast to that, also 100% true, there is solidarity in the source of those many gifts. Many gifts distributed, but solidarity in the source of those many gifts. They all come from one and the same place. And throughout this passage, Paul strains to emphasize that all of these gifts, despite their diversity, are found in one source, the one and same Holy Spirit of God. And it almost seems a little labored how he says it in these verses as we read it. In some sense, everything that is useful about every person is a gift from God, right? I mean, we, could, we could make that point and argue it, that no matter what we can or cannot do, we couldn't do it apart from the Lord. How can we claim to have truly attained anything completely on our own when apart from God we have no life, we have no breath, we have no strength, we have no thought? So in a very broad sense, yes, the atheist who argues logically for the non-existence of God has God to thank for equipping him with reason, with language, with the tenacity to fight at all. So everything does properly come from God. But when we speak of spiritual gifts here, we're talking about a category that is very focused and narrow. This belongs to a category all of its own. They are gifts that only originate, originate from the Spirit and are only manifested in the lives of those that have the Spirit as a seal of their salvation. Now, most of the individuals we're going to look at in the weeks, uh, individual gifts we're going to look at in the weeks to come can be paralleled to some degree in the lives of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ yet. You know, a non-believer has some degree of knowledge, don't they? An unbeliever has some degree of service. They can perform some degree of hospitality to others. These all exist in a diminished form in non-believers, but they are, and they are not, therefore, the exclusive property of the Christian. 
but they cannot be expressed by a faithful person in such a way as to glorify God, and they cannot themselves accomplish any eternal good if they are performed by somebody who is an enemy to God. An example of that would be Saul, the one who wrote this letter, right? The man who penned these very words. Was he a fool before he was saved? No, he was a man of great wisdom. Before he took that journey to Damascus and was interrupted by Christ, uh, he was a man who had been trained extensively by the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He was a model of religious practice. He had a lot going on for him, at least as far as the world could see, but he was a spiritually dead man. Brilliant, maybe, but dead. Not able to glorify God in the way that he lived his life. All that skill and all of that ability would have failed to get him even an inch closer to the redemption that Christ can offer. Apart from Christ, he could not have gotten to the Lord. And so Paul, or Saul, better known as Paul, would be, inter- would be interrupted on the road to Damascus. He would be regenerated uh, to, to life in Jesus Christ. And then he would be commandeered and pressed into service. He wasn't asked if he wanted to join the the party. He was told, this is what's going to happen. I'm now going to gift you, and I'm going to use you for the glory of Jesus Christ the Son. Suddenly that sharp intellect, all that training that was useless before Christ, now it is the very intellect that God is using for his kingdom. It has a spiritual vitality to it because the Holy Spirit has quickened it and has used it now for the good. Does that help you to see how spiritual gifting isn't always the onset of an entirely new skill? Sometimes it is the work of the Holy Spirit giving life to a believer in such a way that a skill you used to have that was not used for the glory of God can now be redeemed for the use of the glory of God. That's not always how it happens. We're going to see sometimes you're going to get a spiritual gift that had no connection to you before you were saved. The Lord might take a person who is very slow to speech, And he might fill them with the Spirit in such a way that that individual is used to teach the Word of God and to do it well. You might not be an outward person. You might be naturally a lone wolf. But God can wake you up in such a way that the gift of hospitality might suddenly be yours. And that you might be filled and equipped to invite others in and to be hospitable to them in such a way that they feel welcome, to feel like they are a part of God's people. So God can foster an old skill that was not used for the glory of God to use it now for the glory of God, or he can give you one that's completely new and unique. This concept is a key to understanding the solidarity by which every Christian gets their spiritual gifting. Their gifting comes from God because salvation comes from God. Notice how many times Paul refers here to the same spirit, the one spirit, same spirit, one spirit. This emphasis puts to rest the idea that some might have a better version of the Spirit than others. There is no tiered version of the Holy Spirit. It's not like some people get the 91-octane Spirit. Other people are stuck with the 87-octane Spirit. And if you're from the South, they have it as bad as 85-octane back there, right? Uh, I'm talking about gasoline right now, if you didn't pick up on that. But the Holy Spirit that is in each of you is one and the same Holy Spirit and capable of doing miraculous and powerful things. Spiritual gifts are given by God according to the discretion of the Holy Spirit. You can't get them somewhere. You can't acquire them. They have to be given to you. Now, those of you who grew up in the video game era, 
are used to going on quests to find things that will level you up and make you better. But this is God's world. And so if you are a Christian, there's not something that you go out and get and can call it a spiritual gift. God will give you what you need. He grants it to you according to his discretion. Spiritual gifts can't be purchased. We saw how Simon the Magi tried to purchase the power of the spiritual gifts uh, last week, and he was denied that. They are not acquired at the university or the seminary. You can't be a person who God does not intend to use in preaching and then go to school and get a whole bunch of education and suddenly you're able to preach. That's not how God does it. Now, can you develop those gifts at the seminary level? Absolutely you can. If God has gifted you to preach, then going and getting an education can, if your direction is good, if your instruction is, is worthy, it can make you a better preacher. It can help you to grow. It can cultivate that spiritual gift that God has initiated in you. But apart from the constant faith and abiding love in Christ that characterizes the true believer, then your gift is going to lie fallow. So there's diversity in the types of gifts that God gives. There is solidarity in the source of these many gifts. There is universality in the distribution of the gifts. Universality in the distribution of these gifts. That means that that each person in the body of Christ is going to be gifted in some way, shape, or form. Paul reveals this to us two times in the course of our passage. 1 Corinthians 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In verse 11 it says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul's use of the term each here indicates that there are no saints who are overlooked in this regard. This does not mean that each Christian is gifted in the same way or to the same degree. There is no equality in the distribution of the gifts, nor does there need to be. Because really, what are the spiritual gifts about? They're not really about you. They're about the Spirit. They're about the glory of God working in His people. And so if God chooses to frame His glory and put it on display in a more mighty way in another brother or sister than He does in you, Our goal and our aim is to see Christ glorified. It's to see the living God lifted up. So let us rejoice in that instead of being upset at that. Instead of trying to look at each other as rivals, let us recognize that when God exhibits His glory at all an individual, He's accomplishing what all of us desire. The fact that all this blessing is from God, the one source of spiritual gifts, means that the emphasis is not on the individual through whom God chooses to manifest the gift. The emphasis is on the fact that it comes only from Him. So what universality does mean is that no saint is without some kind of spiritual gifting. God has no child that has been overlooked in the distribution. All have experienced the blessing of his generosity. That means if you've not put any of your spiritual gifting into action, if you've not used your justification, your sanctification, the unique sets of characteristics that make you you, if you've not used them in some way to bless God's church, then that's not God's fault. That's on you. That's on you. God has gifted you. He has made you alive and prepared you to serve. So let's serve, church. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 5, 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Imperative command, be filled. That means that each of us should seek each day to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, we all have the Spirit of God who are believers. 
We've been granted the seal and the promise of the Spirit. His presence is with us. But when we abide in Christ and trust Him and love Him in faith and walk forward in the light that He has given to us, then the Spirit fills us. We walk in such a way that that faith is becoming manifested in our lives. It's becoming a reality and not just an ideal. So it is possible to have the Holy Spirit of God, but by negligence, by distraction, by stubbornness, by temptation, it is possible to live in such a way that you are not really being filled by that Spirit that seals you. Salvation is not synergistic. Salvation is the work of God alone. But once you have been saved, Christian, the Lord expects you to exercise your heavenly citizenship by walking in the light with help from the Holy Spirit that God has provided for you as a helper. In order for a redeemed Christian to obey the command of Christ, we have to exercise freedom. We have to engage. We have to worship our God. Now, knowing that God has most certainly gifted us with the measure of spiritual power and blessing so that we might put that gift to use among the brothers, let us determine to not let those gifts go unused. A saint might let his talent remain buried. We're probably going to come back to this parable of the talent at some point through our teaching on the spiritual gifts. You might remember that, uh, that slave, that servant, who was given a special deposit from his master when his master went away for a journey, and he was told to do something good with it. And the servants who were given much did much. They were faithful, and they saw those gifts multiply. But the one who was afraid buried it in the ground and did nothing with it. We don't want to be like that wicked servant who buries what God has given in the ground and doesn't use it for the glory of the Lord. It has been given for a purpose, not for our own enrichment, but for the enrichment of God's glory and for his kingdom. God has no child who is overlooked in the distribution of the gifting. All have experienced the blessing of his generosity. Acts um, 2.38 And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about our spiritual gifts, you might struggle. And you might think, I don't know what my gift is. I can't identify it. I took a survey. I took one of those little flyers and I checked all the boxes and it just wasn't really clear to me which one is, is my gift. Don't worry so much about what the gift is. Even if you think that you don't have any gift at all, if you are saved, that in and of itself is a gift, is it not? It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you repent and you are baptized, you are given the gift of life. You're not blind anymore. You're not lost anymore. You know where salvation comes from. You've been given direction. The word is not a mystery to you anymore. You can read it and understand it and enjoy it. You can rejoice in the law of God instead of running away from it. You are saved in him. Romans 3, 23 through 25, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received with faith. Your salvation is a gift in and of itself. And if you are saved, use that salvation for the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I think we get so bogged down by the particulars of the gifts that sometimes we forget to recognize and, and thank the Lord God that our life is a gift. Our, our spiritual vitality is a blessing from, from God not deserved, not earned by our actions, but just simply given out generously. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So you want to use your spiritual gifts? Be alive in Christ. Try to live your life in such a way that God is glorified in every aspect and element of who you are. Take heart, Christian. The very fact that you are wrangling with your conscience. If you don't know which gift is yours and you think that maybe your gifts are so small they can't be helpful to the church. If you are wrangling with your conscience over whether or not you can be used well to bless the kingdom of God, that is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work within you. Because lost sinners don't concern themselves with being a blessing to the body of Christ. If you've been redeemed, that should be something that you desire, to be a blessing to the body of Christ, to be useful to your God. The unredeemed man or woman is concerned with the things of the world. They are concerned with what others will think of them personally. They want to know what they will get if they follow the rules. What will be their reward for it? But the redeemed believer grows ever more concerned with the things of God and for the glory of their Savior to the degree that even if the smallest sliver of spiritual life and vitality has been granted to them, they want to find ways to use that small sliver of light as a gift and a blessing from their God. So there is diversity in the types of gifts that God gives. There is solidarity in the source of those many gifts. It all comes from the Spirit. There is universality in the distribution of the gifts. Everybody gets some kind of gifting from the Lord. And finally, there is utility in these gifts. There is utility in these gifts. That means that these gifts are useful. They are applied for the common good of his church. They're not just generally useful. They are specifically useful. Verse, 12, or verse 7 of chapter 12, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. For the common good. He defines it for us. He makes it very simple. The spiritual gifts that God gives are used for edifying and building up the whole church of God. Now, if the meaning and use of the sign gifts, such as speaking in tongues, is the most common misunderstanding of Christians regarding the spiritual gifts, then I would have to say that the second most common misunderstanding is the idea that the spiritual gifts were primarily given to us to bless us for our own selves. That's not the case, church. Our spiritual gifts were given to us so that God may bless our brothers and sisters through us. It's understandable that people would be confused by this because the default state of man is not altruistic. We're not constantly thinking about how we can be a blessing and a benefit to others around us. Our instinct is to look out for ourselves. Even when sometimes it seems like we're being altruistic, usually it means I want to build up this community around me because I want it to bless me. I want to be a hero in this community. I want people to look up to me. But in reality, God wants us to function very differently as saved believers. He wants us to be outwardly focused, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him daily, right? We see an example of this mentality, this mindset in our Western culture, where birthdays are always a big deal for us, right? Right? Birthdays are a big deal. And when someone has a birthday, what do we do to celebrate? We pamper that person, don't we? 
We let them have their way throughout the course of that whole 24 hours. Enjoy it while you can, right? You get to pick where we go to eat. You get to pick what activities we do. They get their preference. Everybody else serves them. Everybody else honors them. At least that's what happens in our house, in theory. They get their preference, right? And none of that is particularly wrong, but it does kind of shape and reinforce this idea of the way that we look at giftings. Gifts are for me. They are mine. They are for my benefit, right? When in reality, when God gives us spiritual gifts, it is not just for me. It is for others. I can recall giving my youngest boy, Benjamin, a big bag of candy for his birthday. I can't remember what kind it was. But Ben had this big old bag of candy, and as soon as it was open, you know the first thing he wanted to do with that candy was? He wanted to give it to his brothers. Pretty sweet, right? So let me tell you about his sinful dad. His sinful dad, my first instinct was, don't give all that candy away. That's your birthday gift, right? Your big brothers are just going to take advantage of this. They're going to take all that candy away, and you're going to be left with an empty bag. But then I had to stop myself and think, look at this little guy. The world has not yet really taught him to be so selfish when it comes to gifts. And we could learn something from that example, right? For those who have been redeemed, we need to think differently about why God is generous to us. Because you are a part of the bride of Christ. Because you are a member of the body of Christ. Christian, God's love is for you, but it is not exclusively for you. And when God gives to you, he is giving corporately to his bride, to his body, through you. Think about your life in that way. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the corporate good of the people, not primarily for your private blessing and edification. If you are very happy that God has given you wisdom and knowledge since he saved you, he has opened your eyes and you are wiser now, you are no longer fumbling around in the darkness like a blind man, you have a spiritual enlightening, if you're happy about all those things, but you're not applying your gifts of knowledge and wisdom in such a way that the brothers and the sisters around you are also being blessed by your wisdom and your knowledge, then you're not loving the body of Christ as you should. You're not. That doesn't mean you necessarily have to go out and start a Bible study. We don't all have to lead a Bible study. But when you're in a Bible study class, if God has laid something on your heart, if you've learned something from somebody else and he's enlightened you, share that with people. Ask questions that you think will help others to, to think more carefully about the topic at hand. Take your, your opportunities to share what God has given to you to your unbelieving neighbor, to your family member who doesn't yet know Christ. Show them how you would respond in a situation according to the Spirit and why you think that's better than ignoring God's law in any given situation in life. Use it for the glory of God. Use it to be a blessing to the church specifically. This is one of the strongest arguments, I think, that can be made for taking church membership very seriously and for taking church attendance seriously as well. Now, we live in a culture today where church participation is not what it used to be. People say they're faithful church attenders if they go like two out of four Sundays. They're like, yeah, I'm always in church. When in reality, being a part of church means regularly coming around consistently with your brothers and sisters in the Lord, not only so that you can be spiritually fed but so that you can serve and love others around you. I recall back before the pandemic even happened, we visited some family members who live a ways away from here. And I was really looking forward to going to their church on Sunday morning. But with all kinds of family in the house and the hustle and bustle of this like family reunion kind of thing, 
They just turned on their big old screen TV and they started to stream the service live. And then they go on to explain that the convenience of just watching church at home was so great that they had started to do church that way most Sundays. They, you know, they would go every once in a while, but they usually just did church at home. They didn't have to get all dressed up. They didn't have to try to find a parking space. The streaming made it so easy for them. So my family went to their church without them. We got in the car. We drove to church anyway because, friends, that is a selfish way to think about your participation in the church. You're not just here to receive. I hope you do receive, but you are here to serve. You are here to worship. You are here to give to the Lord. You are here to help other people who may be struggling in their walk with Christ right now. To be a brother and a sister to them means to stand beside them and to live life actively in their presence. What they weren't considering, my family members, was the question that verse 7 here should make us all wrestle with. If I'm just watching church on TV, if I'm just consuming the blessing of God on my own benefit, for my own benefit, then how am I contributing to the well-being of the bride of Christ with my gifts? And I do want to clarify, because if you're at home because you're sick and you're not here because you don't want to get anybody else sick, that's quite different than just staying at home and doing church on your own or listening to the sermon on your way to, to work on Monday instead of coming to church. That's quite different there. I'm not here to try to shame people who can't make it to church. We know that a portion of our people will be shut-ins. But it is up to us to use the spiritual gifts that God has given to us to reach out to those people, to go to their homes, to care for them, to bring them food, to bless them, to meet their needs. That's the active body of Christ. And if God has given you a family here, a church body, then regularly come. Make it your determination to be here, to worship your God, to see how you can be useful to those whom God has connected you to by covenant. We have a church membership class coming up here in, in September. If you're not yet a member of the church, begin praying about whether you want to be involved with that, whether you want to come and learn what it means to be a covenant member of a church so that you can be tied specifically to the elders of this church who will foster your growth, who will help you and direct you, correct you if necessary, who will encourage you and will challenge you and how you can be involved in a ministry way with the people who are here. Now, you hear the common argument all the time, I'm a Christian but I don't really go to church because I can get all that I need outside of the church. Let me just answer this in two parts. First of all, you cannot. You cannot get everything that you need outside of the church. God has saved you into the people of God as part of his plan to provide for you all that you need. It is not an optional association. The church was given to you for your blessing and you to remain in a covenant relationship with your church as you worship your God. And if you don't, then you're not taking communion together with the saints. If you don't come regularly to church, you're not looking your pastors in the eye and knowing that they are caring for you as a shepherd. You're not engaging in personal fellowship with the full body of believers and not just the ones you like the most, right? It's very easy for us to put all our focus and attention and just hanging out with those church members that are most like us on the weekends or when we have free time. But when you come to church, we're all here. So you can get to know those ones who are in a different generation than you. You can connect to those who might not have the same struggles and life experiences that you do, yet they're still your family. So first of all, you cannot be healthy apart from the church. Now, it can, you can survive. You can make it through. 
There are Christians right now in foreign places who are incarcerated because of their faith, and they don't get to go to church on Sundays. God will sustain them and make them through, but they hurt because they're not there. They are missing out on the blessing of that beautiful fellowship and grace and community. Secondly, first of all, you can't get what you need apart from the church. Secondly, how selfish is it to think that you can? How selfish is it to think that as long as I get what I need, then it doesn't matter whether I'm there or not. You have brothers and sisters who need what you have, who need your encouragement, who need your service, who need to feel welcome and loved by you, need your hospitality, who need your faith, an example of it, who need to experience your patient, enduring friendship. So let us eagerly desire to not just be fed by our church, but to come here and to be used of God to serve one another in this capacity. There are a couple other smaller questions that often come up that we can answer here. When it comes to spiritual gifts, do you only get one spiritual gift? A lot of people ask me that. I have to have one spiritual gift. Secondly, how long do I have that spiritual gift? Do I have the same one for my whole life? Does it come and go? Is it locked in? And I see the answer to both of those questions at the very last words of verse 11. The Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. So if he wants to give somebody two gifts or three gifts or four gifts, he can. And he may. If God wants to give you the gift of hospitality for a season and blesses you with a great big house where you can have everybody over, and then a different season of life, he takes you to an area where you've got this tiny little apartment, there's no room for anyone, and it's harder for you to welcome people in, then maybe God's going to supply you with a different gift. It is his prerogative what gifts that he gives and to what degree he gives them. So let us just trust him to do that well and to know what his church needs. If you go to a different church, maybe you're going to go to a church where they don't have a certain type of gifting in abundance. Maybe the Lord's going to use you to bring a new kind of blessing to that church, maybe one that wasn't really a spiritual gift to you before, but he fosters that in you. He awakens that in you. He provides it for you, and he provides it to them through you. The gifts are his to give according to the needs that he determines, but they are not for us to use however we want to use them. They are gifts to be given back to his glory in very specific ways. There's much more to learn, church, uh, but hopefully this morning we've laid a foundation of biblical understanding upon which we may continue to build uh, our comprehension of the spiritual gifts. So let's have a word of prayer, and we're going to sing a song to close and have our benediction. And hopefully uh, as we progress through this passage, we're going to look back at these same verses next week and some other verses as we look at these sign gifts and whether they have ceased or whether they continue. But let's uh, take some time and thank the Lord God for what he has shown us today and the clarity that he has brought through his word. God, we praise you and lift you up to be glorified. There is no one that could bring the kind of wisdom to us that we need but you, Lord God, there is not a source. It's not just simply found in a book. It is found through the understanding that the Holy Spirit brings. And so, Lord God, if there's anybody here today who still doesn't understand the Scripture because the Holy Spirit is not there, they've not yet given their life to you, I pray that they would consider who they're living for and for what reason, for what purpose. I pray, Lord God, that you would put a conviction on their heart to see the reality of their own sins, to look around this room and to understand that anyone who calls himself a believer has confess their own sins to you already, Lord. They've come to terms with the fact that there's nothing they can do to unravel the mess of rebellion that was defining them before they found Christ. But Lord God, in your mercy, there are those whom you quicken and awaken, and we pray that you would awaken someone today. 
You would help someone to come for the very first time to the throne of grace and receive the blessing of Christ's righteousness imputed unto them. Father, if there are people who have questions about that, I pray that they would seek out the elders here or the person that brought them and that these conversations would continue. Help us, God, to be dwelling on these things through the rest of this day. Let our conversations after the service is over be rich and full of consideration and love. Let us pray for those who need prayer. Let us meet the needs of those who are, are lacking today. And may we do it all in joy, knowing that is how you provide for us, your children. And we pray this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ, our brother. Amen.